Hello everybody, this is a Bridges of Meaning Discord conversation. I'm Job and today I'm here with Matt D. Allison. Good afternoon, Matt. Hey, Job. I would like to ask you, what brings you to the Discord? Well, I, uh, I've always been a passionate thinker. And even before I knew how to spell, I was darting my eyes trying to find a concept. And that's kept me in good stead in terms of finding conversation partners from first grade to uh, I just turned 30 in September. Paul Vanderclay shined for me like a nice shiny object. Mm. What was it like four months ago when I was scrolling through YouTube and for one reason or another, after watching a Jordan B. Peterson clip, he was recommended to me. I thought as I watched him describe another pastor, that is to say, a secular pastor, Jordan B. Peterson, I thought to myself, this man reminds me of like a fusion between my favorite philosophy professors and my favorite pastors growing up. Right. He brings them into one. And then, of course, he, he dropped the link to Discord at the bottom, and I thought to myself, maybe there are people like me there. And sure enough, Joe, there are many people like me there. Or there are many people like Matt there, or however you want to say it. We're not too far away from one another, it seems. And what, what got you into Peterson originally? Originally? Well, what was it? Um, I don't remember the event off the top of my head. I don't know if it was the biblical lectures or if it was 12 Rules for Life. But I remember as I was hearing him speak, I thought to myself, this guy is doing eloquence and oration and poetry, and mythology, and philosophy. And when I was a senior in high school, I remember we read a short story by Hemingway, and the teacher had us raise our hands because this was honors English class, and we were supposed to say something interesting about the passage, short story by Hemingway. And I was darn sure that I knew that in the short story, Hills Like White Elephants, when the man and the woman are waiting at the train station and she puts her hand on some carpet or some rug that's uh, being held up for sale and touches the little thing at the end. I don't know if you know its name at the tassel. end of a rug. Kind of like a little ball, a knot. The tassel? A what? A tassel. Maybe like a tassel or something. I put my hand on it, or the main character put her hand on it, and none of my peers mentioned it they were mentioning other things that were explicit but i was like i had this interpretation in my mind so i raised my hand and i said when she does that she's actually thinking of the child inside her that was just conceived by this man and as she leaves on this train and he stays behind she's sad that he won't see their child now none of that was in the text if you i defy you you can read hills what hills like white elephants 50 times and there's no mention of a child, but I am still convinced to this day, aesthetically, Hemingway put it there as a oh. symbol. That's why she ran her fingers over that little tiny ball in the tassel. She was thinking of her conceived child with the man. Uh, I, I think Peterson does that with Pinocchio's long nose and Geppetto's star and uh, Jacob's ladder. I think he has an eye for the allegory. The allegory. That's really interesting. It makes you want to read that poem to kind of have an idea of what you saw 
when you heard it. Yeah, man. Hills Like White Elephants, a short story by Ernest Hemingway. And by the way, Joe, I remember when we were setting up this conversation. Uh, I, can I ask you off the top of my head? Did you ever find someone to talk to about the crucifixion? Uh, as I, I had a conversation yesterday with Luke, mm, nice. which kind of just happened after our reading with Rando session, which kind of went all over the place. Um, it's, it started out with the crucifixion. I mean, I'd still love to talk to you about it. Uh, we, we, we I was just curious that. what you, where your thoughts were on that. Um, well, the, the reason I brought it up is I was, I was trying to make sense of some things in Christianity. Uh, as I said to Luke, I don't have so much a problem anymore with God. Um, Aquinas pretty much explained that one to me. And I don't have so much a problem anymore with the resurrection because mm. reading the historical records, there seems to have been something that went on. I mean, something must explain all the other things that happened. So I was trying to make sense of the crucifixion as such a central point within Christianity. Um, so I asked Luke, well, did it have to be the crucifixion? Could it have been a beheading and would it still have worked? Like was the focal point, the death of Jesus or, or is of, let's say, equal importance, the way in which he died. If you refer back to say the Psalms that say, well, uh, they'll, they'll, um, they'll stab me with a spear and they'll divide my garments. Like the way the crucifixion is told, was that necessary in that way? Hmm. It's a good question. And... Mm -hmm. Have you seen the movie The Passion of the um, Have I seen the movie The Passion of the Christ? I'm, I'm repeating it because you broke up a bit. Um, oh, yes. That is my question by Mel Gibson. Yeah, I, I haven't. Uh, I've seen a couple of scenes. Uh, it's kind of on my list of things to watch. And the reason I ask is there's an icon right to the cross. People put it on the side of a building. By the way, Job, I don't know the answer. I'm just thinking out loud with you. In mm -hmm. conversation. Uh, there's an iconicity to the cross. People put it on the side of their buildings. Jesus has the crown of thorns in replacement of like gold and jewelry and diadems, et cetera, et cetera. And his arms are stretched out and he does not have control over them. He can't grasp what he wants to grasp because there's a nail in the way. So too with his feet. And he's, very, he's humbled and he has a sign over his head saying King of the Jews, which mm. strikes me as interesting. Maybe we could use this as a launch pad. A, a dear friend told me today that the, the Gospels don't make narrative sense. I, I think I tend to agree. There, there's not like a a genre they fit nicely into, especially if you read them line by line. They're like pastiches of, they're like hypertext, really. Like, especially John. If you read John line by line, every other line is some allusion to the Old Testament Torah. It's like whoever wrote it was having a conversation with multiple Jews about how to interpret a passage in the Torah versus another passage in the Torah. And Jesus came through as the embodiment of answer whatever that was 
Um, so it's very interesting how the Gospels get handled. But now to your point of the cross and the, the true-to-life way in which this figure died, when they put the sign above his head and said, behold, the king of the Jews, or this is the king of the Jews, and whatever else it said, I can't help but think, what a case of irony that the gospel writers and the situation itself, the historical existential situation that that figure found himself up on the wood under this piece of irony. So I, I think it's the same question you have, just phrased differently, that's been on my mind lately. How comfortable Christianity seems to be with things that are typically regarded as literary, right? Uh, novelistic concerns. Mm. Um, irony. It's very sophisticated. And, and you're saying comfortable, like it, it doesn't cause a second thought. It's like, well, that's just what it says, and we're okay with that. Yeah, it's like Christianity's all right with being for the masses, but also well developed and sophisticated in such a way that an intellectual could bend the knee. Because if you look at the situation, it just wasn't here's someone who's going to die for everyone. He wasn't a martyr like that. It was like all the details were cosmic. Um, why would God? I mean, I don't know how deeply we want to go into this theologically. I'm not sure how deeply you're interested in that, right? Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, how do you, what do you make of the cross? Assuming it happened, like what, is, what would that mean? Like, especially because you're, you're, you're in a church and you, you have a pastor and you're doing the outer court ministry. So how, like, what do you do with that symbol, that, that icon? Oh boy, that changes from day to day. Uh, yeah, the, the difficulty I have with the crucifixion is that it's so easy for me to just see it as some guy who got crucified. Hmm. Like he, he was seen as a revolutionary. His followers hoped he would be a certain type of revolutionary. And he got uh, crucified for being a, what was the word for that, less day? Uh, what was the a seditionist and yes I could easily see that and say well all the other stuff around it was uh, a story allegory aggrandization but then I run into all the stuff that happened after like well if he'd been crucified and nothing would have happened you probably wouldn't have seen the church form about three weeks after. I, I can't place that very well. Plus, if you read the Gospels, he's constantly, well, constantly, he, he refers quite regularly to himself needing to die, the temple needs to be broken down, and it needs to be built up in three days. And, I don't know, then nobody will ever have to taste death again, or something like that, depending on how you read it. And I could say, well, that's all been added back in. That was that was constructed later. Could be, I mean, but then you read that early creed in 1 Corinthians, and it seems to have been established pretty early that Jesus died for the sins of mankind and rose 
and is now sitting uh, with God in heaven, whatever that means. So, I don't know. I'm at crossroads as far as that's concerned. I don't consider myself a believer, so, but I'm trying to make sense of it. I, I what, What's your religious background in that sense, by the way? Mm, mm, yeah. I, I want to make a connection to that idea of sometimes a person, when they put their hand on the tassel, they're just putting their hand on the tassel to pass the time. And other times when they put their hand on the tassel, they're unconsciously signifying to themselves what they know but can't articulate yet. For me, when I look at the cross or I think of the resurrection, I get a, I get a wellspring, right? I get an existential wellspring. By that, I mean Soren Kierkegaard helped me understand that, like you pointed out, Here was a man who, by all appearances, was like everyone else. He could have been a zealot. He could have been a seditionist. He could have been a Pharisee. He could have been just a rabbi. He could have just been a guy who just wasn't cut out to fish. Mm. He said some things. He had a vibrant ministry, whatever that looked like back then. Like Paul Vanderclay said, why was it that when he came out of the boat, everyone flocked to him? What was, what was going on on that boat? Were there banners? I mean, how did the people know where Jesus was? <laughs> um, the at any rate but when he died let's say we expunge the resurrection from the codex okay where, where would christianity be but like if he did come back and if he was still flesh and blood when he came back no he left them so it's not like that even the people that john the gospel writer sat down and taught and wrote First John and Second John too. It's not like those people could come and say, "Hey, John, snap your fingers and make Jesus come back down so we can see him too." Like all they could go off of was his words. Just like when John saw Jesus, all he could go off of was, "You're the same guy, right?" So I, Kierkegaard taught me that there is a sense in which Christianity has this thing to it, where it eliminates historical distance. Yes, it's a historical religion but it eliminates historical distance because of the mode in which Jesus handled his disciples and left them. He came to them as a man and he left them. Even with the resurrection, he left them. Mm. And how are we any different from that? Now, there's, so there's a sense in which their belief is ours, even though they got to be eyewitnesses. I mean... If anybody has their own mystical experiences, they're eyewitnesses. And I don't want to go into mysticism, but I think it's real. I think everybody has some form of experience in their life. Doesn't mean that it's equivalent to touching the hands in the side of Jesus Christ. Do you see what I'm trying to paint there with that no historical distance? I might be wrong, but that's kind of how I approach it. What, what are your thoughts? I'm, I'm trying to follow along. Uh... I realize I'm not being too clear. I haven't found a good way to articulate it. So feel free to ask questions. Maybe I could, nuance, I could be more particular that way. You seem to propose a hypothetical, kind of like how Tom Holland does in Dominion, I guess. So let's say 
either Jesus just wasn't crucified, so he lived a long age and he kept teaching, or he was crucified and then he just didn't rise. But either way, the, the, the miraculous event didn't happen. Uh, hmm. it, yeah, yeah, but was, now assume that. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, so assume that what? So, okay, so with that premise, now assume in the third category that he did rise and he appeared to his disciples and to many more. And I mean, just imagine that. Like, we could put ourselves in their feet. Imagine your teacher comes home, <laughs> you know? Um, I mean, my goodness, there were at least three paradigm shifts for those people. What we wouldn't give to be in their shoes. You're a Jew. You believe that your king is coming and he's going to be a king. He's going to be the Messiah of power. He's going to take away the Roman rule. He's going to allow you to worship in peace. He's going to bring shalom. And now he comes and he, he seems to do all that. He's opening the book to you. He is performing miracles. He's, he's touching the lepers. And then he says, yeah, I have to go and be crucified. What? No, that's, that's a curse. You don't get to be crucified if you're God. Um, the, but I'm going to do it, and then I'm going to be back in three days. And the only sign all of you are going to get to know that I am the one is the sign of Jonah, three days in the belly of the whale. So he was, and I'm sure that went over a lot of people's heads. They were like, yeah, we know about Jonah, but why are you comparing that to being buried in the ground? And then he comes back. And, and he and just looks at them. And they look at him and they're like, he's like, can I eat something? It'd be like knocking on your door. After you went through all that. Way. I just think, man, what it, what it must have been like to have been Matthew, the tax collector, or Luke, the physician. I, yeah. I, think, it, I think Christianity requires, requires so much more imagination than doctrine. Yeah, especially Luke. <laughs> yeah. I, I can only imagine that God, in that sense, has a sort of sense of, let's say, grand narrative if it had to be that way like why that way well because that makes for a good story and the only reason it makes sense to us is because we were made in god's image and therefore we understand that same story but uh... and it's like it's hard for me to put myself in other people's shoes all the time. I try to do it, but I fail most of the time. Like I grew up in a religious background. So the, the religious vocabulary always tripping on my tongue, but other people like they didn't grow up with any religion and that's fine. So they don't have the background of the stories. So what does Jesus look like to them? I'm fascinated. Um, so it, like, is that a question to me, or? I don't know. I just paused at it. I didn't know if you wanted to say something or not, or I could keep going. Well, it, it, it really depends on where you read about him. Like, if you read about him in, well, no, it doesn't really. I mean, whether you read about him in Mark or Luke or John, or and, and I'm not particularly leaving on Matthew for any reason, but let's say you read Mark. 
in Mark, he talks about the way that, well, you just have to sell everything and follow him and leave your brothers and sisters because, well, it's difficult for people who attach to material wealth to enter into the kingdom. And you can say, well, okay, so he means that uh, allegorical, he talks about a hypothetical kingdom on, on earth where humans care about each other and don't care about wealth. But then you read Luke where he's just raving and ranting against the Pharisees and the hypocritical people of the law, as far as those are the same thing, <laughs> where he seems to just want to break down the political system, but he also does that with a sense of eloquence, and he always has an answer ready for those who try to trap him. And then you read John, where he's pretty much obviously pointing to who he is, and then he says also some pretty extreme things on how people should be. And then some disciples say, well, yeah, who, who can do this? Who can follow this? It's too hard. And he says, oh, oh, does my teaching offend you? Is it too difficult? And he says to his own disciples, you're going to leave me now too? Because he sees everybody else leaving. And then you read Matthew where he just expunges on how people should behave None of that makes any sense for an under, uneducated uh, carpenter slash stonemason from the town of Nazareth. It, it doesn't make a lick of sense. How could he even read the scroll of Isaiah? I mean, how could he speak with authority? It, it, I can't, it doesn't make any sense. Like, even if you could say, well, he was taught for 20 long years somewhere, by somebody or a group of people that still makes him an an extremely charismatic, quick-thinking person who you would meet them and they just blow you away by how they act and move and speak and so yeah I the more you look at it the more it doesn't make a lick of sense Sorry, I, yeah, you, uh, I got disconnected. Oh, sorry. I said it was beautiful how you put it. A lot of thoughts jumped to my mind. Go um, ahead. So if, if we want to... Yes? If we want to use... Can you hear me? Mm-hmm. Oops, you there, Joe? Yeah, yeah, I can hear you. Go ahead. Okay, cool. So if we want to think of Jesus as the frame of frame, to your point, um, maybe... If I could coin this phrase to the question, what is a person? Because in some sense, as we're comparing the gospels, we're comparing a person or are we? Um, is it like saying, if you and I witness a car crash, we're going to have different stories because we're looking at the car crash from different angles. We may have different relationships with the people in the car, et cetera, et cetera. We might know the neighborhood differently than one another. So we're going to uh, assume certain things about where that car crash ended up, whatever we want to say. The uh, it's true for a person as well. Like, I've maybe met 500 people in my life that I've been close to. I just threw out a number, but and I'm sure there's a pattern of what they would say who I am, but there's also variance amongst those people because I was at different places in my life. Um, 
now you add to that the recording software of because people didn't write novels back then it wasn't an industry they committed a story to paper or whatever they were writing on and they used poetic tools to convey their thoughts in a way that would be memorable and also in a way that when read aloud would sing right they had readers to people who were illiterate so they had to generate imagery so there was so much so much craft put in but nowadays we we want you know just the strict facts so where do we draw the line between the craft that was used to propagate the story of this very interesting man from who the man actually was and I think that's another beautiful location for faith and the deepening of one's interest below the surface of what was said. So when you were saying all that, I was thinking, yeah, man, it makes me think again of that phrase that Paul uses somewhere in one of his letters when he says, Jesus is the all in all. Um, even in his life, we can see the story of the, of the prodigy. Luke says when he was very young, his parents went home and he stayed behind in Jerusalem and they looked for him. They couldn't find him. And then they went to the temple and there he was, mm -hmm. content 10-year-old, questioning the teachers and amazing them with his question. And when they say, why did you do this to me, son? He says, didn't you know? I mean, come on, mom. <laughs> um, I'm supposed to be here. This is, this is my business. I mean, what 10-year-old says that? He should have been chasing a ball around. Um, yeah, yeah. So you have the prodigy. And then when he gets older, you have that invisible time of life where he takes up a career, stonemason, carpenter. Um, now we can get all whimsical by quoting the, the Proverbs where Sophia is there by the creator, the father, when the foundation of the earth was set. But it's, it's invisible for a reason, I think, that part of his life. He was a normal man taking care of business. So he goes from the prodigy to a normal man. He grows in stature and wisdom. He's in obedience to his parents. And then, and this gets me because I just turned 30, so I can't help but like the way I approach Christianity, I think the more identification, the better. Um, there's a fancy word for that. Maybe you and Luke talked about it, theosis. Yeah. Did Luke ever bring that up? I think so, yeah. And then he... He referred later to a discussion we had in the Orthodox Introduction Channel, but we didn't get into it into detail, so feel free to elaborate. Yeah, I'm no expert, uh, but the way I use it in my own life is, uh, so theosis is just God, theos, and it's an ugly word, just as words go, because it doesn't say a whole lot, but um, if you take it in the Latin, you have, or you have divinization or uh, deification but those don't really grasp what it's trying to say because we don't become god but i'm, I'm getting too far afield let me go back to jesus um, you know he lives like a normal life subjugated to his parents and then when he turns 30 and this is where i just turned 30 so i want to identify and that's why i thought of the word theosis he gets up after being tempted for 40 days right he he, he and this is amazing to think about if he is god why would he fast? Does God feel a fast? Um, well, certainly Jesus did because he hungered, it says. And he's tempted, he overcomes, he's victorious, and then he goes home. 
I find it so fascinating. I've been meditating on this. You have to tell me what you think of this, Job. He comes home. And they're like, oh, Jesus is back. Where have you been, buddy? And, you know, he probably has his friends, his bar friends. Because, you know, he was a carpenter for quite some time. I'm sure he made friends. Mm-hmm. And they put his arm around him. And they're like, how you doing? Welcome back. You, you had your time out in the sun. All right. Yeah, you did your profit thing. How was it? You're going to, you know, you got some tables you could make. Here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're going to get back in business. You know, who knows what they actually talked about. Right. And then, and then he goes to church, goes to synagogue, and they give him the scroll, as was his custom, he read. So like you pointed out, here's this man who is able to read, and they know he's able to read, but they don't call him God for that. They're just like, oh, Jesus is back. And, oh, yeah, Jesus, you're going to read again. You've got, who knows? He probably had a very nice voice. He could probably accentuate it. He was probably had something to comment on. Just, you know, stuff that people would say that's nice. We're glad we have him around. I mean, there's nothing else to do in Nazareth. So he gets up there, and I think, I think this was a break. He, he reads it. Remember the portion of Isaiah that says, now the blind will see, the deaf will walk, or the deaf will speak. Yeah. I'm mixing my illnesses. That's you okay. know what I'm trying to, mm-hmm. to match up here. Uh, the people that are lame will walk. But what Jesus says is... By the way, this has all been fulfilled in your hearing, right? The people are like, I don't know why that stunned the people so much. Like, what was it about him saying that? What was the occasion, the decorum that made them stunned? And apparently he said some other things after that, because it says in the narrative, they were just amazed at his gracious. Yeah. And then it's so clear. It's so clear imagistically in that narrative. Once he says those things, he sits down with the people. Like it's so, that's such a stark image. A person up in a lectern, speaking, saying gracious words, and then sitting down. And the people just looking at him. Yeah, I mean, apparently, like, what he didn't say is, and now that I'm standing here, you all need to worship me, you all need to follow me. It, it, you can't really make heads or tails of it. But clearly, he's, like they say, he spoke in a way, not like the Pharisees, who would just say, well, here's the law, and here's how you should keep it. But he spoke with with a different kind. And people said, "Oh, this is this is a new teaching. What is this new teaching?" Yes. But we like what we hear, even though it's new. They didn't say, "Oh, here's some young whippersnapper telling us, you know, how to do it." Here's this carpenter. Like, isn't he the kid of Joseph? That's what they ask. Like, isn't that isn't that Mary's child? What's he doing? Like, they do wonder about that. So they clearly have an image that they now can't match because it didn't make sense Mm. that this Jesus kid would do this. They've known him. They've seen him, you know, play with their kids. So, like, as far as I understand it, like, only one person really... isn't Isn't there, like, one guy in the back who yells out? Or was it just a story I read? So I have this book, it's called It's Called The Story Goes. And the writer talks about this and he says one guy in the back speaks up and it's the village idiot who's (laughs) who's, he says why are you here jesus you know it's not your time yet why why are you here already to 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 disrupt our lives like you know the demons often say to jesus like oh son of man why are you here Um, it's too early Uh, get back and in the story, you know, that's that's the one guy who actually sees what's going on because of his possession. 
and he understands it. But nobody listens to him because hey, he's the village idiot. So, yeah, that probably is. I don't know if that's anywhere in the Gospels, but I like that interpretation. But I like no, that story as well. No matter how you put it, I, I once put a, a, I translated it into English, and it's got to be somewhere in the history of the general channel on the Discord. Um, the guy is kind of controversial because he's a pastor, but he doesn't believe. So he's a man after my own heart. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, again, Matt, no matter how you put that story, I mean, depending on where you read it, they want to throw him off a cliff or they're impressed or. Absolutely. I think, and I'm glad you brought that up because uh, that's why I want to get us to, to go full circle to how Jesus is all in all in his autobiography. Um, so I want, I want to hear what you think about this. So if you take that little, I, here's a great word. It's P-E-R-I-S-C-O-P-E, pericope. Like you could break down the gospels into a number of pericopes, number of short stories, episodes. Mm-hmm. The beginning of this pericope is he comes home after his um, temptation. And it ends when he's almost thrown off a cliff by his, his hometown friends. And in the smack dab of that episode is what makes them change and turn on him. And it was the fact that he found his mission, his vocation. And he, had, he in that little space of relatable human communication, because everybody comes to a moment in their lives, right? They turn 30, they turn 40, they turn 27, when they decide oh, it's time to be an adult now and I better get you know, my act in order. And like Peterson talks about subjecting oneself to an apprenticeship and then coming out the other side when they're older. Like Jesus did that. This has been fulfilled in your hearing. I interpret that as, okay, now I'm the Messiah figure. <laughs> like, he said that to him. They're like, whoa. Um, but he didn't say it like, a, like an authoritarian, to your point. Like he didn't say it like a Roman would. Bow down, I have the authority. He just says, by the way, me doing this actually fulfills it. Mm-hmm. Um, and they hated him for that for some reason, because he at the same time said, now you say you understand me, but you actually don't, because you're going to quote to me, heal, heal yourself, physician. And they're like, who do you think you are, Jesus? You, you, you're a guy who just came back from the desert. Like you pointed out, we know, we know your parents. You can't take this mantle up. We're waiting for another. I mean, if you could, Jesus, why can't we do it? That was probably in the back of their mind. There was some envy. Um, and so they wanted to throw him off a cliff. That's exactly what happens, though. When a, when, a, when a person comes of age, I would argue, from a literary that story, that pericope, is exactly what you will read in other stories. When a person comes of age, Bill Dunn's Ramon, right? A coming of age story. The moment they come of age in their consciousness, is the moment when their hometown seems too small and they have to leave. Huh. Here it's dramatized by they're going to throw him off a cliff, but he passes through. And I think that's exactly what you want out of that pericope of a person's life story. They grow up, they decide what they're going to do. The, their friends and family hate them because you become an individual when you decide what you're going to do with your life, which means you break ties with family and friends metaphysically. And they hate you for that. Maybe they don't hate you with violence in the way that it's dramatized in the story, but they, they definitely feel that you are pushing away. And so maybe they'll push you right back. Um, 
But Jesus comes through the other side. He literally passes through the mist and shows us that he lived that segment of our lives that we all live. He took it in the flesh, but he made it through because he's God. <laughs> um, I, I find a lot of intimacy in that. Because even when people are young, like maybe you remember in your own life, we don't all get to be the prodigy, but we all have that vivid imagination as children where we do surpass ourselves. And we have family members who tell us, remember, you might not remember this, Joe, but when you were eight years old, you said so and such and such to so and so, and it was just like wild beyond your years. I think a lot of people have that. I mean, it's certainly an archetype and it's a myth. And then we all have the jobs that we carry. And then we have the moment of awakening where we decide what we're here on earth to do. And nobody's going to understand it. They'll, they'll say they do. But when you really press on them to accept it, they get mad at you. Because it's, it's a mark of your individuality. I mm. see like Jesus lived through those moments. And it just cements to me evidence that he lived a real human life before he died on the cross. And right. so full circle, full, full circle back to the theosis thing. There was a saint, Saint Athanasius, who said, God became man so that man could become God. It's like that's God doing it, like living those phases of our lives so that we could like actually relate. I know that's a lot of words, but I actually didn't think about that beforehand before talking to you, but I do I do believe that's true. It does take away like the evidentialist standpoint of apologetics. And more like puts the story front and center. Mm. Like, what kind of God is it that would want to be so close to us, like, really want to be in communion with us that he would live a full human life? Like, get away from the 33 years. That's kind of arbitrary, but like, that he lived the phases of the life that we're going to live through if we're given a fullness of life. Like, that to me, that you can interpret it any way you want, but I think of it as an int that the God would, would want to be among us in such a way. Yeah, that's, that's, I can't wrap my head around it. Like I've tried, it is, it's, it's so, like imagine that you meet somebody like that and they have such a, um, what's the good term for this? They have a, a view of their existence that is simply just out there like in a sense of perhaps glory or or just very intense existence and you think like who, who are you to to dare to appropriate your own life like that and this guy says well look at this scroll here that's me that's that's why I act the way I do. And then they sit down and you're like, who who says that? <laughs> and be, because I could say, well, the guy was the guy was just crazy. You know, he he just did that because he was he had delusions of grandeur and delusions of, of uh, religiosity or some other syndrome that I've read about on Wikipedia. Who knows? But then it doesn't make sense with all the other things he does. Like the picture never, the picture never points. It, the story doesn't work unless you accept that he was God. Otherwise, none of that makes sense. So, I mean, so let, let's take the Buddha. 
there's there's some similarities here if you take out all the all the all the, all the stories about how he wasn't born from he was born from his mother's side because you know strange strange stories about the guy but let's say let's say he was the son of a um, um, local tribal leader um, and he was kept away from his father from all the terror of the world like uh, I, I was telling a story to Luke how when I was like let's say 15 I met the my nephew my my aunt had given birth and we had a family gathering and I met I met my nephew he was a couple of months old and I just cried and I didn't know why I couldn't even speak because I had to cry but like just looking at that that vulnerable child and I totally forgotten about the story until Luke said something that brought it up in me like I remember just not understanding why I felt so protective and so terrified of this this vulnerable potential in that in that infant but let's say you're the father of the buddha you're like this kid must never see the horrors of the world so i have the means i will do it i will protect them and they will never have to worry they will never have to suffer now peterson would have interesting things to say about that because he says you're never going to create a proper human being because we need to be exposed we need to contend with reality but then buddha eventually realizes well there is this horrible thing and well, now my entire life changes. Like I've seen these other stories that appear true. So, but what Buddha does, he goes to all these other teachers. He goes to all these gurus and he studies with them and he probably learns from the other students around him. And he was still a pretty remarkable person because he keeps realizing what they're teaching is not enough. They're only getting me so far. And to me, I, I, I know that there's more. So eventually he turns into this really strong, ascetic, fasting way where he says, I could just poke at my spine. I could grab my spine through my skin. That's how skinny I was from just denying himself. And then he realizes his middle way where he should eat something, but he shouldn't overindulge. But... Even when you compare this person to Jesus, like Buddha would never have said that he was God. He would say, I'm just a person and I figured something out. And maybe some of you people can figure it out, but I doubt it. But I'll try to teach you. <laughs> well, that's what he, according to the story, you know, Brahman comes to him and he says, well, you know, basically he says, congrats, Buddha, you figured it out. You know, Brahman is Atman. We're all the Godhead. And Buddha says, that's all fine and dandy, but now what? And Brahman says, well, you should go teach others. And Buddha says, well, they won't get it. There'll be sand in their eyes. They will be blind to my teachings. And Brahman says, well, tough luck. You know, it's your job. I don't, I don't know. I'm just kind of winging the story. But uh, Buddha at some point says, okay, so maybe there are some people with less sand in their eyes. And maybe I can teach them. And that's what he sets out to do. He basically goes to those who we already recognizes to have a somewhat understanding so he goes back to his old ascetic friends and those are the first he teaches and they're like oh you oh you stopped your asceticism we saw you eat uh, you ate rice rice um um uh, some some ri rice food that he got from some girl and so they don't like him anymore because he broke his fast he broke his ascetic lifestyle and he says no 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 i figured something out please listen and those become his first followers but he'll never say I'm a god, and he never say he never says I met Brahman. He says I figured out this wise teaching about the cessation of suffering 
and I, I wish to teach you. Now compare that to Jesus, who goes to the synagogue, speaks with authority and says, this is me. This prophecy of Isaiah was about me. That's, that's still radically different. That's a whole different level of claiming things about yourself, despite your articulate way of teaching that that's just... It's, 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 it's in all the ways in which Jesus was written about. So, so let's, say, let's say there were other people like Jesus. You know, there was Apollonius of Triana, and there was uh, who, who had also a following. Um, and there was Simon Bar, Simon Bargoria, maybe. I don't know if you heard about Simon. No, I haven't. So he, uh, he, he, had an up, he uh, led an uprising. He said, I'm the Messiah. And I'm going to free us from the the Romans. I'm uh, I'm going to to lead the, the the revolution. So he gets a bunch of followers, and you know the Romans say, "Oh, none of this!" And they <laughs> they capture him, drag him through the streets of Rome in this large procession, flog him, and kill him. Okay. And the only story we have about that guy is by the Romans. Who wrote about him or maybe maybe Josephus or Tacitus wrote about him none of the Jews wrote about this guy and because well <laughs> he was a failed messiah and he died and he didn't go to the synagogue and speak with authority he didn't feed 5,000 people he, he, he didn't sit on a mountain lecturing his disciples and the multitudes around him about how to be blessed how to be a proper human being. He said, I'm going to throw off the yoke of the Romans and you'll watch me do it. And then it didn't happen because the Romans didn't take kindly to him. And he didn't come back either. He just, he died. He stayed dead. And maybe that's why we don't hear about him. But he also wasn't a, a moral teacher. So that's, I mean, because I guess the reason I say that is because I can, I can, tell about other revolutionaries i can talk about other spiritual leaders like i i had my my years with buddhism i'm sitting next to my bookcase with a whole row about all sorts of books about buddhism i learned a lot from it but it doesn't compare to to the story of jesus it it or the stories about jesus rather it's it's just different it it yeah i can't make sense of it either I know, I kind of rambled same, there, Matt. The, uh, <laughs> what did you say? I kind of rambled there. No, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. It was very informative. Um, I, I'm there with you, man. As far as the paradox of Christianity that keeps me uh, from, from desiring other religious metaphysics. I mean, not only do I get everything I want in Christianity, I get more than I could possibly ask for it teaches me in other words how to ask questions um so for example the in christianity like you pointed out we have this figure but he's a person and it's there's that element of fascination like what would it be like Jesus? now you add to that he defeated death he came back and then he left to a high place at that moment once you've settled in your heart that it happened, when I, I don't mean you, I mean like a hypothetical you, any human being. This is the beauty of Paul's letters, right? When Paul writes a letter, he's writing to a specific church, but those letters can be read as universal documents. 
the church cosmopolitan. Like he's speaking to a universal you. Kind of like Walt Whitman writes poetry for the universal you. Paul wrote theology for the universal you. So Jesus comes back and he leaves. And so it allows one to say, that person which held so much fascination for the world for like three years, and before that, the Nazarenes took to him well, that person is out there. Like you want to talk about aliens and all that coming for us? Like Christianity claims that this human that is more than human, that is the God-man, is out there. And right now, <laughs> like, um, it, it, it creates a kind of vigilance every moment of every day, if one actually believes that. Because, I mean, I know you're, you exist, you're talking to me. I exist, I'm talking to you. I have two eyes, I have a mouth. I'm moving them. Jesus is doing the same thing because he went up in bodily form. Like, if one believes that, it changes everything. Um, because, like, the whole universe changes. Everything changes. It's such a, it's such a demolishing set of axioms for any other religious system. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I... To think that after death, there is a person waiting, with a personality waiting, and that one would be able to go up to it, and then that thing, that person, is going to say, I know everything about you, I saw everything, the way you lived your life, the way you choose to walk in your story, and uh, that figure is smiling back at you. I mean, it's... there are days when I don't want to go meet my dad. Like, imagine now going to meet God. <laughs> like, it's... Yeah, uh, and then I just wrap it up with one other thing on my side. Soren Kierkegaard, again, I love him. He's my favorite philosopher. He uh, he see, he made an interesting observation in his book, A Sickness Unto Death, where he said that what Christianity Christianity has that can never be diluted with philosophy or self help gurus or anything like that is the offense that it gives, and the offense comes from its uh, authority. It claims implicit authority as a religion. A deeper authority than Islam, because it's the authority that says everything about the universe is explained already by the thing we serve. And so we don't have to colonize. We don't have to take up a sword. In fact, the sword's already been taken up against what happens when the sword cuts into the neck. Like our God defeated death, so we don't have to go and fight war for our God. Like maybe we will in the future, but it's not like we have to anymore. Uh, because death has already been defeated. No other religion can say that. It's like no other religion has the guts to say that. Because if you say that, then you don't need earthly power. You can wait until we all die. And our religion will still be true if it's actually true, because we'll get resurrected. But if you don't have that kind of certainty within your religious axioms or frame, then of course you will assert everything you can to get earthly dominance and power and build up your hierarchy this side of the yawning grave. So I think it's a Christianity has a nerve to it that other religions, I just don't see them having the guts to go full bore on. Well, I mean, the same but that, thing, I, was, I was being kind of provocative at the end. What are your thoughts? No, I don't think that's provocative. I think it's, it's, it's fascinating because in that same sense, Christianity says, well, death has been defeated, but that doesn't mean you just get to sit back and eat grapes. You... <laughs> 
have to live an existence that is worthy of death having been defeated for you. You still need to earn that. And I precisely that, that, that and that's that's the beauty of of Christianity defeating every earthly power. Like the moment it did that for us, I'll just say us, it defeated your government and mine simultaneously in terms of its power over us. But at the same at that moment, it also defeated us as individuals because it took it it took away all earthly powers over us, but then claimed itself as completely over us. So that, like you said, it defeated my death. I don't have to face my own death. And paradoxically, I must now face my death in a new way, a Christian way that has far more significance than if I was just a piece of compound atoms about to be discombobulated someday soon. Well, and, and, and the way you say it defeats the government, like I, I think it was Herod who hears about Jesus and, you know, oh yeah, he's raising people from the dead and healing them. And Herod's like, I forbid him. You must stop it. Go out and tell him I forbid him to do this. I'm thinking that's that's such a, a beautiful, kind of snarky way of the storyteller to describe the governmental impotence against the glory of God. Because like, <laughs> stop, stop raising people from the dead. No, I, I'm warning you, stop it. Like, what are you going to do? Kill me? <laughs> exactly. What are you going to do? Kill me. Precisely. And I wonder in the atomization of democracy, how, how the other side of Christianity is going to come back. That is the monarchical side, of it, right? Because there, there's a rich tradition of Christianity having a, mon, a monarch and um, an empire and not the rule of law, but the rule of theology. Now in certain countries, certain parts of the world, there's this rule of law and deep atomization of people. And you get that first side of Christianity where it's you in an absolute relation to God, where your own most possibility is your death and everything you've done in life, your story, you're going to have to retell to Jesus and he's going to look you in the eye and he's going to give his yay or nay. And it's going to be like, oof, Simon Cowell doesn't hold a candle to what Jesus, how, how it's going to feel like when we have to talk to Jesus about our lives. Um, I, and I feel like there's just so much nihilism in this atomization of democracy that people spend most of their lives just scraping away the darkness of confusion and obscurity that they get so few years to live an authentic Christian heightened pitch moment of life. Because like a Christian life is full of adventure because every moment it's like, is this the best story I could possibly be telling for Jesus? Right, 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 killed right. death. Yeah. But we have nihilism. We have so much nihilism. It's like people could spend 20 years in nihilism and like five years in Christianity. And I just feel so like, I, I don't know. My heart gets, my heart aches for that because I don't know how to get those people out of it sooner than later. What do you think? Uh... Well, that's, I'm trying to, to, to do something similar, like getting people out of nihilism and trying to get them to see what I've seen as far. I mean, because I, 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 can't, I can't go back to nihilism anymore. I've, I've seen too much. I've read too much by now. I think, so, oh man, I've read this synopsis of a book that I'd like to read. Um, it's about a, a doctor who 
who gets cancer when breath becomes air i think it's called uh, you can read the synopsis on wikipedia and he he dies of cancer it comes back eventually after a, a, a remission period uh, but before he dies he still gets to become a father and if I understand this correctly, if this is true, Matt, if, if the whole story of Christianity is true, which I don't know at this point, let, let's say you, you die and you come to Jesus, you know, who is, who, you, you face God, who has conquered death in your name, then I think the best thing to do is to come to, to show up and say, I, I, I thought existence was such a grand thing such is this such a beautiful gift this is what i what i got out of it despite the fact that i suffered despite the fact that i had cancer twice and these terrible surgeries and the chemotherapy i still got to see the beauty of life the 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 wonderful experience of marriage the the indescribable grandeur and 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 love of becoming a parent like, yeah, there was tragedy, but there was also glory. And I made the most of it as, a, as, as much as I could, which in my, in my understanding of the Christian framework. And now I, could do, I can do that, whether Christ was God or not. That's fine, because that's already a better way than being nihilistic. And you can say, well, Job, you're lying to yourself. Okay, I'm still doing better than I used to. So, because as soon as you're nihilist, then, well, lying to yourself has no basis to be judged negatively because there's no basis to act in any way because there isn't any grounding for uh, moral behavior. So, you could say, well, you're lying to yourself. Yeah, but how is that bad if you're a nihilist yourself? And I think that's going to be the way I eventually will have to jump into faith, kind of like Kierkegaard, that the alternative is, is better. The story of Christianity is a better story to live in. That's all I got, Matt. Matt, you still here? Did I, uh, did I lose you? Unless there's anything else you wanted to discuss. I think I think I I had you break up. The last thing I heard from you, unless there's anything else you wanted to discuss. Yeah, I said what your your anecdote at the end was an, a nice epilogue to our conversation. So I'm good uh, at that. If you are. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think this was a really interesting conversation. I would sure like to have one again with you. Uh, Likewise. Yeah, thanks, thanks for for reaching out, and uh, I, I, I'm gonna have to end it here because I'm gonna get ready for my work day. But uh, yeah, I wanna, I'd love to talk to you again. I'd like to know how your storytelling event went and the story you talked about. So I'm sure we'll talk again, Matt. Yes, sir. I have right. a great uh, day and I'm going to bed. Bye bye. Yeah, sleep well, Matt. Take care. Thanks. Bye bye.